0: Which brings me back to the introduction to my message today I see Monty but I don't see Wendy are you back there where's Miss Wendy she's in the foyer well she might want to come in here because I'm going to talk about when Monty and Miss Wendy our children's minister dated her husband Monty all right so Monty and uh, Miss Wendy were dating back in uh, let's say Colorado rado 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 whatever you want to say and um, I hope she can hear me in the foyer but Monty turned off the ignition shift uh, shifted his seat and placed his right arm across the back of Wendy's seat as they pulled up into her home are you yelling at me already Wendy okay you ready you and Monty were on a date had been dating several times and there had not been the first kiss yet Monty was being very patient and so about the fourth or fifth maybe 10th time you guys were dating he pulled up in front of his you know the dorm room where you guys were and uh, he turned off the ignition shifted his seat and placed his right arm up across the back of Wendy's seat she in the meantime could sense what was about to happen so she snuggled a bit closer to Monty toward his door Wendy, Monty began, I've really enjoyed spending time with you and I'd like to kiss you. May I kiss you good night for the first time? And Wendy just stared at him in total silence and said absolutely nothing. Wendy said, Monty said a little bit more nervously, I asked if I could kiss you. Wendy just stared ahead in total and complete silence. Wendy, Monty persisted, I asked if I could kiss you. She just continued to remain silent, staring at him, saying nothing. Finally, he said, Wendy, are you deaf? To which she said, Monty, are you paralyzed? (laughs) So I want to know how it went. Obviously, it went well because you guys are married and they have 25 children. So um, (laughs) paralyzed. The question is is the church paralyzed are we paralyzed today paralyzed in inactivity paralyzed in complacency paralyzed with apathy not fulfilling the role and responsibility that christ gave us when he gave his disciples the great commission in matthew chapter 28 So far, we have studied in Matthew 6, 7, 8, and 9 this lengthy series and this verse by verse study of the gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus himself has been involved in ministry. It's been all about Jesus, and it should be all about Jesus. Matthew 6 and 7, it was Jesus who taught the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 8, it was Jesus. Who coming down from the mount was approached by the leper and he healed the leper it was jesus when he entered into the city streets of capernaum in the and in just inside of the city gates where he was uh bombarded by a roman soldier who wanted his slave to be healed it was jesus who went into the synagogue and taught and while he was teaching a demon-possessed man revealed himself, and he cast out the demon. It was Jesus who from there went to Simon Peter's house and upon arrival encountered the the news of Simon Peter's mother-in-law was more than likely close to death and was physically ill. And it was Jesus who went in and he touched her and he healed her. It was Jesus then who addressed the multitudes who came that evening following uh, the celebration of the Passover. Where he healed many, many people of various diseases and cast out many demons of demon oppressed people. It was Jesus then who calmed the storm and the waters of the sea as Jesus was exiting, to going southeast to get away from the crowds. It was Jesus when they stepped on the shore where the two demon possessed men encountered him who cast out the demons into the pigs. It was Jesus who later on we discover in Matthew 9 is in a home where a paralyzed man is dropped to the roof. And, and as a result, of that he forgives him of his sin and heals him physically it is jesus who approached matthew who is sitting in his tax collecting booth, collecting money for himself personally and for the roman government and he calls him to follow him it is jesus who then from there while he's walking back in the streets of Capernaum is approached by a father who is so concerned for his daughter that he asks Jesus to heal her. It is Jesus who is walking toward that that encounter with that father and that daughter where a lady touches the hem of his garment and she is cured. It is Jesus who gets to that home finally and raises that daughter from the dead. It is Jesus then who encounters the two men who were demon possessed and he casts out the dead. It is Jesus all about Jesus so far. It's all about Jesus. And the disciples are just sort of lagging behind a part of the crowd, watching what is going on and standing in awe and amazement at all that Jesus had done. But now we are seeing at the end of Matthew 9, where it is Jesus who now turns to his disciples and he's going to challenge them to rise up and lead like Jesus. He's challenging them. He's saying, guys, I need to have a moment with you where we are going to the school of discipleship so that I can pour into you what is necessary because soon i am going to be leaving this earth and i'm going to need you to be equipped not only as disciples but as leaders who will pick up the gauntlet and who will carry out the great commission that i'm going to give you and jesus now takes his time to address his disciples to do exactly that to train them as leaders what does that have to do with us if you're a disciple you have been called not only to discipleship but you have also been called to lead you've been called to follow jesus and jesus was a leader you may say well i'm not i'm not a very good leader well y- yes you are because if you're to follow the leader he was a leader you too must take the lead And you and I, as his disciples, we must understand that if we don't lead out into the world that he's called us to lead out in and to seek to fulfill the Great Commission, the Great Commission will not be accomplished simply because there won't be laborers out in the field that is ready for harvest. There's nothing more saddening, Brother Denny, than have a field that is ripe unto harvest and no one harvesting the field. Would you say that's true? I mean, it is white, it is golden, it is ready for the harvest, ready for the plucking, and no one is there to collect that which God has grown and made available for the harvest. There needs to be laborers, and he's calling these men, and he's calling us today to step out of the crowd of casual Christianity and become the leaders that God has empowered us to become through the empowerment and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at the leading of Jesus. For he sets for them the pace in Matthew 9, beginning with verse 35. Here it is. Jesus is leading by example. He's leading by example. And if we as disciples of Jesus must then follow in his footsteps. We must follow his example. So there are four characteristics of leadership displayed by Jesus himself. And he's wanting us as his disciples to emulate, to copy, to pattern, or to follow these leadership characteristics. So what are first leadership characteristics that I find in the text is the word commitment. Jesus had a commitment to seek the lost. He had a commitment to go out and to find and to save a lost world that was in desperate need of a savior. Take a look at the text beginning with verse 35 in the opening phrase, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages. Did you notice that? And Jesus did what? He went throughout. He had absolutely, positively no regard for the people that he was seeking to save. He was impartial. He was unprejudicial. He was non-selective. Jesus would go anywhere to anyone that needed Christ, and he would proclaim and he would preach the gospel message of Christ. He was not selective. I know of churches today who are selective, and who they are going to reach they only reach the up and ups they only reach the lawyers and the doctors and the financially well they overlook the poor which is the reason why we as Emmanuel baptist church have not left the downtown i mean we have a lot of churches that are leaving the downtown to go to the burbs why are they doing that why they're forgetting about a community right here in downtown in the heart of wichita that desperately needs the gospel And if someone doesn't stay here, if we all move to the burbs to reach the up-and-ups and the young adults, then who's going to stay here to reach the people right here in Wichita, in this city, just across the street, who need the gospel of Christ? And that's been our major objective for several years now. We have sought to reach our neighborhood primarily for the first time, I believe, in a long time as a church, and God is blessing that. We have a whole different church on Wednesday nights than we do on Sunday mornings, And over half of our children in our want program are from the neighborhood and it brings a lot of problems but you know what anytime you're reaching lost people it brings problems and there are people who obviously have visited our church but they don't want to come because you know what it's a little bit different than what I'm used to in the burbs and that's okay but our Great Commission is to reach notice Jesus reached the cities and the villages Some of us need to reach the city. That's where the mass of humanity is. That's where the majority of the people are. And there there is a larger majority of people inside of the city limits of Wichita than in any suburb of Wichita. And so Jesus reached to the cities. He went to the masses. He went where the large population segments were, and he went to those. But he also went to the villages. I pastored in a First Baptist church that was a village. You look it up on the map and it's not listed as a city it's listed as a village what does that mean it has no city government (laughs) it's a village it had a 5a school system but it was a village a large community without politics in it other than school politics it had a post office a couple of banks a grocery store two three or four fast-food chains but it was a village, it wasn't a city. And Jesus went to the far far away places, the out of place places, and he went to the inner city where the large masses of humanity. And so he's saying to us, we, like him, must have a commitment to go to any one, anywhere he leads with a gospel message about Jesus. You know, he, in this incredible passage in Luke 15, and most of us know the story about tax collectors and sinners were gathering around jesus and someone so put up a protest against that and he told a parable about a certain man who had a hundred sheep and he had 99 whom he had gathered together in the pasture but one was missing and it suggests jesus as he's speaking to them he says in luke chapter 15 he says and when A man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 so-called righteous persons who claim to need no repentance. Jesus is suggesting by that parable, and he's stating in this passage through the gospel penmanship of Matthew that he went out and he went to redeem a lost humanity. Let me ask you something, church. How can we fulfill our commitment as a disciple if we stay in the confines of the church and if we don't go out into our community and compel people to come do you think people are just going to wake up and decide to come to church on sunday morning are you concerned about the empty chairs in this auditorium i know that's probably not fair because there are about 2500 empty chairs and we have never filled this auditorium the day we built it it's never been full And then I believe it's here for a reason because God is paying it off through us. There's a reality that God wants this auditorium here just the way that it is because I believe God wants us to fill this auditorium with people. But they are not just going to wake up and come. We have to go to where they are. The Great Commission said, Jesus said, go into all the world. He didn't say sit back, relax, and just ask, you know, ask that the Lord just just fill the place up and, and let them come. We've got to go. That's the command to go. Jesus went. We, like him, must go. It is a commitment on our part to the method that Jesus used to reaching a lost world for Christ, and the method that he used was to go. And if we are to be like Christ, we too must go. That's a commitment on his part, should be ours as well. The second characteristic that I find of good leadership here is the word concentration. Concentration. Jesus was concentrated on a certain type of ministry. There was a ministry that he concentrated on, and it didn't veer off of that heart at all. Now, I know in church work today, and those of us who are pastors, it's really hard to stay focused. It's hard to stay concentrated because there's so many methods and so many things that we could do. And, and I get inundated with mail almost many times a day as to certain programs and certain things that I can use in my church to generate either attendance or finances. Those seem to be the only two preoccupations, attendance and finances. And I just delete them all day long, weekly. Because everybody's looking for the next gadget and the next thing that's going to be the miracle worker that's going to grow their church numerically and financially. Well, how about looking to see what Jesus did and doing what he did? What did he concentrate his ministry on? The same things that we should concentrate on. Notice it says in the last part of verse 35, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What did he concentrate on? On teaching. What is teaching? It's instruction. And he tells us where he went to teach, where he gave instruction. He went to the synagogue. I mean, that's the same thing in our study of Acts that we almost took several semesters to get through in Discipleship University. That's exactly what Paul did. He went to the synagogue as soon as he went into the city because he knew he would find people there who would be studying the Bible. And Jesus also went into the synagogue. Because he knew that there would be people in there who were him. Why did he go to the synagogue? Because there would be Jewish people there. There would be Israelites there who would go to worship. And he would go there as a rabbi or as a scribe and be, be given the opportunity to open the word of God to break the bread of life and to give them insight that they were not aware of. The people that he was teaching to in the synagogue were flat out what we call in Deep East Texas ignorant. They were ignorant. They either had false teachers or fake teachers or scribes and Pharisees that were teaching them legalistic things that had nothing to do with the Word of God, and they were ignorant because of their false teachings, but they were also ignorant because, I believe, of their lack of study of the Word of God. And they just simply did not know the truth. And the best mission field that Jesus had in reaching a lost humanity was the church. The best mission field was the. Ch- I'm convinced that the best mission field today is still the church. Billy Graham, I looked it up this morning on the internet to be sure. He said 50. He believes that 50 to 85 percent of people who are members of churches today are lost. Think about that. 50 to 85 percent of those who are members of the church are lost. We have almost 6,000 members. How many of those do you think are lost? They've walked an aisle, they filled out a card, they've mouthed some few words, they've been dunked at our baptistry, but where are they? Are they disciples? Are they following Jesus? Have we made converts and not disciples? Did Jesus call us to make converts or disciples? he said go into all the world and make disciples but we're really good at getting people to mouth the word and get him in the baptistry and then say well done church we baptized so many and then we go on to the next lost person And the greatest mission field is in the church today and I'm convinced because many are ignorant there are many churches today where the people just don't know the truth They have false teachers and false prophets and false preachers that are proclaiming a truth that is not in the word of God, just like in the day of Jesus and the best mission field is the church. And so he went about teaching in the synagogues. Notice he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The word preaching means to proclaim like a herald. You are a messenger of the King and you are proclaiming good news. And Jesus was a, proclaimer of the good news what was the good news the good news of the gospel the gospel of the kingdom he represented god the father the king of all kings he the son of the king of all kings now came to say the long-awaited messiah has finally arrived and i'm calling you to repentance like john did and to receive me as the long-awaited promised messiah he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. To come to be the Savior of the world, and those who repent and receive Him as their Savior, as their Messiah, would be saved. That's our message today. There is no other message other than the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, the perfect, immaculate one who took upon himself sins that he did not commit on the cross, died in our place, and as we put our faith and trust in him, we then get the power of the resurrection of Jesus who frees us from the penalty of our sin and a promise of a glorious future in heaven forever. We have a gospel to preach. We have the message of the gospel, and we are to preach it. We are to go out on the highways and the cities and everywhere and proclaim the good news of Jesus. I just got a new truck here not too long ago. Some of you have new grandchildren. What do you think about that? Some of you are going like that. I, I never understood grandparents until I became one. Grandparents are sick Uh, you want to see you want to see and some of you parents are just as bad about it You put I mean my daughter-in-law. I love her to death There's five or six pictures of of Owen Taylor Boswell on Facebook every day And I love looking at them. can't get enough of it But aren't we so good at proclaiming the good news of a birth of a child or a grandchild? But we aren't that excited about declaring the greatest news of all The arrival of the Messiah and the possibility of, through the gospel of Jesus, eternal salvation. Jesus proclaimed, he taught, but notice he healed. Notice, and healing every disease and every affliction. Why did he do all this healing stuff? Well, he did it, and we studied two chapters, Matthew 7 and 8, so that he could then prove that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. Remember when John sent his disciples, and he was in prison, and He was a little bit confused, and Jesus told the disciples of John, go back and tell John what I'm doing, all the miracles that you're seeing, the blind see and the lame walk, and he'll know that I am who I claim to be. Why? They understood the prophecies that the Messiah would be able, through the power of God, to do these things. That would prove that he was who he claimed to be. Jesus was declaring to those as he was doing these miraculous things who he was. We today don't have that kind of ability But we do have the ability, even though we cannot heal people physically, we can bring spiritual healing because Jesus many times, as we studied in Matthew 7 and 8, dealt with the spiritual need first and then the physical need. We have been given the authority and the power to deal with mankind's spiritual need, and their spiritual need is their lostness because of their depravity, and the only way they can be forgiven of their sin is through faith in Jesus, and he then comes and resides in them and gives them a new birth and cleanses them of their sin. And bring spiritual healing I mean in Acts chapter 1 as we look at that incredible encounter with I mentioned earlier as we started this text where many had gathered for the last viewing of Jesus and in Acts chapter 1 we see for us described in verse 7 and he said to them it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority acts 1 verse 8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Notice, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. When? When the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. What are we as his disciples? We are his witnesses. For the moment we place our faith and trust in Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, through that incredible gift, we now are his witnesses. Notice he said to them in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And a lot of people like to say, you know, that's still our great commission today. And I contend with that. I say, no, it's not. It was theirs. And they already fulfilled that scripture. They did. They took the gospel of Jesus to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That was their great commission. That's not ours. And when he heard these things, and and when he had said these things, I'm sorry, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. But notice what happens. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in the white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're standing there and they're just gawking up there, you know, and and I I can imagine them seeing Jesus kind of disappear and and, and they're saying, I I think I still see him. Somebody said, no, no, there he is. Yeah, I can still see him. I can still see him. And they're standing there and they're just, and then all of a sudden they can't see him and they're just looking. And finally, these two men go, what are you looking at? Jesus. (laughs) Didn't he give you something to do? Well, yeah. Well, then you better get on with the business, right? Oh, yeah, we're supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so they go off to Jerusalem. I see a church that's so busy doing this that they're not going. We have a church today that is obsessed with worship. We are obsessed with worship. The Great Commission isn't to worship. The Great Commission is to go and to make disciples. And yet most churches are battling over worship styles and worship songs and how the worship arts pastor is dressed. Sorry about that, Mark. Or if the pastor's wearing jeans or not. Remember, I've told you God made cotton, not polyester. But anyway, what is the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. We're to be concentrated on the fact that we are to be teaching the Bible and instructing disciples, we are to be proclaiming the gospel message, the good news, and we are to go out and take healing to a depraved, degenerate, hell-bound people who desperately need spiritual healing and can only be found through faith in Christ. Thirdly, look at his compassion. His compassion. The third characteristic of leadership is the compassion of Christ. This is his true motivation. This is his motivation. And and, and Emmanuel, let me say this to us. This is a little personal business. Our motivation for reaching a lost community is not to fill the pews. Let me say that again. Our motivation for reaching this community is not to fill our chairs. I'm sorry, we don't have pews, our seats. So that we come in here and feel good about ourselves. That's not our motive. Our motive for reaching a lost community is not to increase our tithes and offerings. I've been here seven and a half years How many messages have you heard me preach on tithing? So I believe tithing is a byproduct of someone's commitment to Christ. It's a discipline that is already there. Now we've mentioned money from time to time. Jesus said more about money than he did anything else, but only to his disciples. But the motivation It's clearly laid out in verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. Notice Jesus, Jesus managed to see beyond the crowd. He managed to see beyond the crowd. Now, we know so far in the Gospel of Matthew that there was a crowd that followed Jesus everywhere he went. He never had a moment to himself. He was always harassed and hounded by a crowd, and he... Even though he got on a boat with his disciples to get away from the crowd, you know what they did? They got in their boats and they followed him. They went everywhere he went. And so would you if you were there. They couldn't get enough of him. And everywhere he went, there was a crowd. And when Jesus looked at the crowd that was there in this gospel account, he saw something. What did he see? He saw the individual need. We're not here just to build a crowd. So we're not here just to build a crowd, but we're here to see the individual need beyond the crowd for those who individually need the gospel of Christ. He was moved to see beyond. He perceived their need. And when he perceived their need, notice how he reacted. He moved to what? Compassion. You know what that word compassion is? That means his gut was stirred. There was a pain in his gut there was an agony a pain that made him uncomfortable when he looked at the crowd he ached for them how how and when was the last time you saw a lost humanity and ached in your soul for a lost humanity when has that been You were so moved by the lostness of this world. I'll be honest with you, I was was troubled by this text because I was trying to figure out, when I asked you this question, I asked myself this question, when was I last moved? And I couldn't remember when I was moved this way, as Jesus was moved. And so I was a little bit disturbed by that. I mean, I'm your your pastor, and when was I last moved? And then I was in the, the gospel according to John in the book of Revelation we're having our last night tonight. There's a commercial, Brother Mike. And uh, we were studying <coughs> the judgment that's going to come upon those who have rejected Christ and refused to repent. And, and for just a moment, I had to stop. And I was overwhelmed. And then I had to repent because, you know, it hasn't happened much in my own heart and i wonder has that happened much in your heart where we have been moved with compassion with empathy with sympathy for a lost humanity that desperately needs to know christ and notice he tells us the reason. It says, because of their condition. What is their condition? They're harassed, they're helpless, and they're hopeless. They're harassed. They have been beaten down. They are harassed. There is an enemy that is relentlessly in pursuit of them, and he's got them captive, and there's no way out. And because they have been so beaten down, they're helpless. There's no way that they can save themselves. There's no way out. There's no way underneath, from getting underneath the pressure, they are helpless to do anything about their condition. And because they are helpless, and unable do anything about their condition guess what they're hopeless because there's no shepherd who will come who will care for them who will teach them and who will provide for them a way out there's no shepherd there's no one who's going to come and proclaim the message and he says that he said they're like sheep without a shepherd there's no one there who's proclaiming the good news why is there no one there today proclaiming the good news could it be because of a lack of compassion And As I thought about compassion, I thought about those of us who were in the church, and I couldn't help but go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan for the children that are here. What happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan? There's a guy who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he, on that lonely, dusty road, falls a prey to thieves. They rob him of everything he has and beat him, almost leaving him almost dead on the side of the road. And a priest comes by, and the Bible says he walks on the other side. A priest. Of all the people you would think would help, me would be a priest? A priest says, no, I'm not doing that. He's a servant. In the house of God, he doesn't have time. Then there's a Levi who comes by. He's the scholar. He's the Bible teacher, and he sees and he walks by on the other side. These religious people, they don't have time for the person in need. They have no compassion for him. But guess who does? The Samaritan who stops, attends to, to his hurts and his pains, picks him up, takes him to a hotel, tells the guy there as he's tending to his needs, gives him some money, and says, "I'll be back on my way this way on my way home. And if there's any expense, just let me know, and i pay whatever the cost and Jesus as he's saying that parable listen and he turns to the guy who sought to justify himself by saying then who is my neighbor he asked the man which one of these do you think proved to be the neighbor the man who fell among the robbers and the man said the one who showed mercy on him where did all this discussion start How do I gain eternal life? And Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? Why did he say that? Because he sought to justify himself because he recognized and realized his imperfection and his unable to measure up to the standard that God had set. And yet he said, well, who is my neighbor? The one who shows mercy. People need mercy today. They need compassion. And yet it's sometimes those of us who are the religious who condemn and accuse, who ridicule, who beat them down, rather than show to be the good neighbor and who extend mercy because it comes from a heart of compassion to those who desperately need to know Christ. Compassion. Fourth and final characteristic is collaboration. We have commitment, concentration, compassion, and collaboration. What's the means that all this is going to take place? What's the means? How does this happen? Well, Jesus gives us the means in verse 37, then he, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. Notice his plan. Christ's plan is to look to his disciples It's to look to his disciples. He says, then he said to his disciples, he has a heart filled with compassion for the lostness of a humanity that is destined to an endless suffering in a place called hell. And he is so filled, and he turns to his disciples because you see, they are the ones that are gonna accomplish and fulfill the plan. His plan is to use his people. His plan has always been to use his people. He turns to his disciples, and he still today uses his disciples to accomplish the great commission. He uses disciples. He turns to them with the plan, you are the vessel, the instrument, the tool that I'm going to use to carry the good news to a lost humanity. And then he says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. He clearly now describes the problem he's turning to them and said you're the solution you're the plan i'm gonna use but here's the problem i, I like it when people come to me with a problem just the problem and then i use that we'll come up with a couple of solutions to the problem he comes to them first of all with the problem and what is the problem well the problem is the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few the problem first of all is with the harvest It's like we talked about earlier. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ready. The harvest is full. God has planted the seed. He has watered it. It has grown and developed, and it's ripe for the picking. And he says, now that the harvest is ready, guess what? The laborers are not enough for the harvest. God, the Lord of the harvest, has given a harvest to those who are there, but there are not enough laborers. I wonder how many people in Wichita are ripe for the harvest, but because we don't have enough laborers to go out into the field to collect the harvest, we're not collecting. We're just letting them rot out in the field. And yet God has done everything to prepare the harvest, and we have not gone to collaborate with him to be his vessels, his instruments, and his tools to gather in the harvest. Chances are, right now, God is working in somebody's life that you know intimately and personally. He's preparing them, and they're getting right for the harvest. And when they're ready, He wants you to collaborate with Him and to collect the yield. So, the problem notice the provision. Notice the provision of God. Therefore, what are we to do then? As laborers, what is our responsibility? He says, "Therefore, pray to the." He's talking to disciples. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. He's saying, "I want you to reach out to me in prayer." He's wanting us to pray, wanting us to pray. Some of you have spent time in that little room over here praying. While we're in here, we have about anywhere from eight to fifteen people praying while we're in here every Sunday morning. And if we're not careful, we can spend all our time over there praying about ancestor Susie's hangnail and her toenail or her, you know, somebody's pierced ear that got a little infected or something else. But what are we to pray for? What does Jesus want his disciples to pray for? Pray the Lord, pray asking God to send out laborers in his field. I wonder how obsessed we are in our prayer life for the lostness of people and for laborers in the field. How much our prayers are consumed for earnestly praying for other things that we think we need that are more physical rather than the spiritual needs that God has for us as a church. Notice they're to rely on his sovereignty. It says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest. Who is Lord of the harvest? Who is the Lord of the harvest? Come on, church. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Jesus. I'm not the Lord of the harvest. I can't fill this auditorium you can't fill this auditorium we can't reach the world who does that he does he's the lord of the harvest now granted the farmer has to plant he does and he has to do some other things but who grows the harvest who grows the crop brother denny the lord does why because he is lord of the harvest It's the Lord's responsibility to use us as we're obedient to him to grow his church and to Bring in the harvest. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign king of kings and the Lord of the harvest. It is he who has prepared the field and is he who gives it. All we have to do is collaborate with him and collect it. And notice the Lord of the harvest to do what? We are to pray for the Lord of the harvest. Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. We rely upon you. We rely upon you. Again, we rely upon you. And notice we request that you send out laborers. Lord, send out laborers in the field of Wichita, of Kansas, of the U.S., of the world. Send out laborers. That's what we're to pray for. Send out laborers. And as we pray, maybe God will send you because your heart's filled with compassion. But what are we to remember? It's his harvest field. It's his harvest field. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into where? His harvest. Not only does he get the glory and the credit, but it's his church. It's his harvest. They are his people, not ours. There are too many people taking credit and, and, and grasping what really belongs to the Lord when it's really all his anyway. We're just simply stewards of what God has entrusted to our care. That's it. nothing more now as i think about in matthew 7 and 8 we've seen these incredible miracles that jesus has done haven't we how many of them were brought to jesus now granted there were some who cried out and there are some who sought him on their on their own But many of them were brought to Jesus. You know, there are going to be people, I believe, that God is going to supernaturally work in their lives, and they're just going to cry out to God, and they're going to get saved. I think there are some who are going to seek him out because he is seeking them out. But I think that there are many who are going to come only when we bring them to Jesus. I'm thinking primarily about the guy in Matthew 9 where Pastor Mike preached on, where these guys brought their friend to Jesus. They brought him to Jesus. What if they had not brought him to Jesus? He would have never received forgiveness of sin and been made whole and been well had they never brought him to Christ. I wonder how many people are ripe and they're ready and God's waiting for a laborer in his field. Could he be waiting on you? Disciple. Christ's follower, collaborating with him in the work that he wants to do through you for a harvest of soul. What should a disciple do? How should a disciple respond? Pray, 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 church, pray, and as we pray, give of ourselves. And give of our time, our talent, and our treasure to go into the harvest field to see what God wants to do in us and through us as we join him in the activity of the harvest field. Let's pray.